During the last election cycle, we heard a lot of talk about leadership. When polled, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents all expressed their strong desire for change, which of course meant change from the Bush style of leadership. And obviously questions like, who do you want answering the phone at 3 a.m.? And who's going to be ready to lead on day one? Tapped into our collective perceptions of the kind of leader we are most likely to trust, respect, support, and follow. Today's show isn't about politics, but it is about the need for leadership in the family. This email from a mom on the other side of the world says a lot about what happens when parents aren't providing it. My 11-year-old boy, who is bright, well-mannered, and doing well socially and academically, has become a bit of a nightmare in the home, with excessive complaining, aggressive behavior, and speaking very rudely to his younger brother, sister, and myself. He does not take any notice of me when I have to intervene and reprimand him. Hmm, sounds like big brothers terrorizing the little ones, mouthing off to mom, and getting away with all of it. Mom goes on. He has dropped his manners and self-control at the front door with his shoes. His behavior is very distressing to our family life, as he only behaves normally when his father is home. Hmm. That has me wondering if she'd be less distressed if he behaved this way all the time. Finally, she ends her email with this question. What has gone wrong? Before I give her some advice, I send her a few not-so-subtle questions of my own. How long has this been going on? What's your theory, Mom, on why your son does not take any notice of you when you talk to him about his behavior? How come you and the boy's father aren't on the same page? What's keeping you from getting there? Is Dad modeling how a caring, respectful man is supposed to behave? Even though Mom doesn't spell it out, something's going on between these parents that is preventing them from providing the cohesive leadership this family needs. The good news is that this can be turned around. Mom and Dad just need to put their heads and hearts together and become co-parents of this family, charting out their shared objectives for raising their kids and walking the parent leadership walk. Easier said than done, right? Maybe, maybe not. Today we're going to get specific about how to take or retake the leadership role in your family. This is Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, Who's Leading This Family? My guest today is Jamie Wolfe, author of Mom and Chief, How Wisdom from the Workplace Can Save Your Family from Chaos. Jamie Wolfe is a veteran leadership consultant and contributor to Working Mother magazine. She founded The Parent Leader to help moms and dads gain the self-awareness and leadership skills to transform their daily parenting challenges into desired results. She also co-founded Pinehurst Consulting, an organization development and training consulting firm. And if that wasn't enough, in addition to being the parent of two daughters, Jamie also serves on the advisory board of Working Mother Media. Welcome, Jamie. Thanks for being here. 
Thank you, Annie. I'd like to start off by saying that I found your book to be a really interesting take on parenting. I read a lot of parenting books in the work that I do, and yours really got me thinking. I was actually thinking in new ways about parenting, which is always exciting for me. In my parent ed work, uh, I often remind parents, especially parents of tweens and teens, that they need to reassert their leadership. Things sometimes get off the track when the kids start mouthing back. And I'm usually referring to remembering who's in charge of setting the tone in the family, the values, and the expectations for behavior. So the first question I want to ask you is, how do you define good leadership? Yeah, I think related to what you just said, leadership is not about abdicating responsibility and, you know, being your kid's best buddy. I think that we sometimes have an allergy to asserting our authority, especially as uh, moms that grew up in the 60s. And I think leadership is about knowing where you're going and asserting your authority, not necessarily power over your kids, but setting clear expectations knowing what your destination is, what's your desired outcome, so that you're not just doing the drudgery of getting your kid, for example, to take a bath. You're setting your expectations for a higher purpose. So a bigger goal. You talk a lot about the big picture. Right. So tell me, how did this concept come to you of equating the leadership role of executives in the workplace with the leadership role of parents in the family? Because it's a metaphor that works on so many levels. And I wonder, how did it come to you? Well, for 25 years, I've been doing leadership consulting and really have a passion for leadership. What is it that makes some leaders bring out the best in others and bring out the full potential and other leaders do just the opposite, create kind of an apathy, uh, inspire rebellion. And so I studied leadership for so many years. And when I had my first child, Anna, 14 years ago, I, I got it immediately. It was kind of an epiphany for me. This is a leadership job. Being a parent truly is bringing all that stuff that works so well in the workplace home. And yet, I think we tend to think about parenting in a more diminished way. I think society helps to uh, have us think about parenting as, I think, involving a lot of drudgery, and it does. It involves a lot of tedious tasks. It's not always joyful, but I think it can be very motivating, very rewarding to think about the job of parenting as a leadership job, that we're really raising a human being and we're trying to bring out the best in this human being that we care so much about. So I'm picturing you with your infant daughter 14 years ago (laughs) and you're changing diapers and you have this epiphany, this is a leadership role? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You know, so (laughs) in my clarity-eyed state, I'm, you know, completely exhausted like all new moms. And I felt like if I don't think of this in some exalted way, I am really going to go insane. And many nights, many days, you know, felt like this is not what I bargained for. And I think it's unrealistic. We don't want to put more guilt on moms, you know, that we should be joyful and, you know, feeling like this is some exalted task every moment of, of parenting. But I think by being more mindful, by being more purposeful, For me, the job became much more exciting. It works. It completely works. It's like the attitude shift. You can't disappear the poopy diapers or the spit up on the shoulder of your nice blouse, but you can absolutely change your attitude about what's going on and what your role in it is. So 
wow, that's that's great that you got it so early on because it sounds like your daughters benefited pretty much from day one with this very mindful leader as their mom. I was just reading in today's Chronicle about a mother who should have known better but lost it. We we often um, read the newspaper and, and get those. And I, I don't know if you saw it or not, but I, I wanted to run this by you and see what you thought. You know, usually when you're in the car with bickering siblings and you get to a point where you've had it, I certainly remember with my two brothers and, and myself when we were kids, my mom would just say, you know, if you kids don't stop fighting, I'm going to pull over to the side of the road and I'm going to leave you here. Of course, she never did it, but apparently this woman in White Plains, New York on Sunday actually did that. She made good on her threat and left her 10 and 12-year-old daughters on the side of the road. (laughs) But here's the thing. This woman is a partner in a Manhattan law firm. So clearly she has leadership skills. And I want to know from you, hearing this, by the way, she, she pleaded to child endangerment. (laughs) So she got nailed. But (laughs) what I want to run by you is your thoughts about what leadership skills were lacking at that moment and how she could have handled the situation better. Because I know everyone in my listening audience has had situations where, you know, when it's good, it's good. But when you're about to lose it, there goes the leadership skills. Right. Every day we lose it. I mean, I think that in our private homes, we probably lose it more than we do when we're out in the world. So we can do a number on ourselves and think that we're the worst mom ever. But that's such a great story. Leadership is so much about self-regulation. And I think it's really hard in the parenting realm because there's nothing that triggers our anxiety, our anger, our frustration like our kids, more than our employees, more than that, you know, pesky worker who won't do his or her job. It's our it's our child and when they're acting in ways that are unappealing, you know, my daughter just yesterday was saying, "Why can't we have club membership to a pool just like all my other friends?" And I just thought, "What a spoiled brat!" You know, how unappealing. So it's all about self-regulation. And, and what did you say to her? <laughs> you know, I did say, "You know, we've got to look at what we have rather than focusing on all the things we don't have." And I said all the things that you're not supposed to say about, you know, think about those, you know, people who are losing their homes. Well, that's falling on deaf ears. This 10-year-old is not, that's not her experience. She just wants to swim. (laughs) She just wants to swim and she was hot. And, you know, I think our, I want to make our privilege visible to her, but it's very hard to make that kind of come alive for a 10-year-old. But I, you know, I I was kind of lecturing her and I, I don't think that that's the right thing to do. So I'm the first one to say that my leadership goes out the door just like everybody else's. But I I do think that we need to try to catch ourselves before we do those extreme acts like this woman who did something that we might fantasize about doing. But, you know, we, we have to bite our tongue. We have to go take timeouts, whatever it takes to self-regulate because I, and when I say self-regulate, I mean that crucial ingredient of emotional intelligence, which is about mm-hmm. not losing our cool. So now in the calm of today, and it actually is probably 15 degrees cooler today, how would you now replay the scene with your daughter from the other day when she was whining about, why can't we get a membership to the pool? You know, I followed up the conversation today. Funny that you should mention it because the person who cleans our house lost her um, house and her car. 
And mm. um, she had her car stolen and her house uh, is in foreclosure. And she heard Rosa talking to me about her problems. And I said to her on the ride to school, I said, you know, this is the kind of thing that's happening all over this country with people losing homes. And I don't want to scare you or make you feel shame about what we have. We should just celebrate what we have and be appreciative of what we have. And then, then I just stopped it there. I wanted to bring it up again because it's such a big, big picture goal of mine for our kids who are growing up in relative privilege to know how much they have and that that's not true for everyone in this world. I think you mentioned a really good point here. The big picture objective for your family, obviously, is a connection to their sense of social responsibility. Exactly. Being, yeah, being aware. And when I do parent ed, I often talk to parents about what it is that they really want for their children in terms of those objectives, those values, moving into adulthood. And what might they be doing day to day in their parenting choices that reinforce those values? Like, this little conversation that you just had, which is really planting a seed, reinforcing seeds, which I'm sure you've planted many on that realm of social responsibility for your two daughters, and just let it sink in anew, as opposed to what we do unconsciously day to day that can undermine what we say we want our kids to um, graduate with from our parenting school. And I think it's so important for parents to be reminded regularly in conversations with the co-parent as as well as with their kids. This is what we as a family believe. Right. And I think even beyond belief, what actions are demonstrating that belief? Right. This is how we live our lives and this is this is who we are. Mm-hmm. There's something else I picked up in today's paper just preparing for this interview. It was interesting. The White House Communications Director, a woman named Ellen Moran, is stepping down to be the Chief of Staff for the incoming Commerce Secretary, Gary Locke. And supposedly, and this is a, a job, she says she decided that the job, the new job, was a better fit for her professionally and personally in the long run. She and her husband have two kids under the age of four. And President Obama thanks her for her leadership during these first critical months of his administration. He says, her management and strategic skills will ensure that Secretary Locke gets off to a fast start. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be talking to Jamie Wolf here about leadership. And President specifically mentioned her management and strategic skills going into the Department of Commerce. So what specific management and strategic skills do you think a mom could put to use parenting two kids under the age of four. You had two children under the age of four, didn't you? Well, I have two kids four years apart. So when my second was born, my uh, my oldest was four. Okay, pretty close. Right. Pretty close. So what do you think in terms of management and strategic skills that could be of use to someone with kids of that age? Because that's a, that's a really challenging age. It is, Yeah. They're all challenging in their own way, but yes. Um, That's true. We'll get to the teen years <laughs> later in the, in the <laughs> <Yeah>. conversation. <laughs> so, you know, the, the word strategic, I think, is so fundamental to leadership. You're not just doing this job haphazardly. I think people push back on this premise that, we need to be leaders at home by saying that it should just happen automatically. If we love the kids, that's enough. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that certainly we need to have the love, but I, and, and I think that that just comes to most of us automatically. 
But if we're not being strategic, there are all sorts of things that happen, which is that we undermine the values that we want to instill in our kids. And if you do ask people a question like, what, do you, what, what are your hopes for um, how your child turns out? You know, think about your child as an adult. Most people will quickly say, I want my child to have meaningful work, be happy, be a respectful person, be a kind person. Well, if in your actions you're not being strategic and you're allowing disrespect to happen every day between your two kids, for example, like the kids fighting in the car, if you turn a blind eye to that, to me, you're sending a message that it's okay to violate those values that you're saying in your strategy is what you want your child to be when they grow up, to be respectful of other people, to be kind of other people. So there are all sorts of moments every day that your actions can back up your strategy to, to, to create a respectful human being. So likewise, if you screech at them <laughs> and, and threaten them, you're also undermining the idea that we respect other people. Yeah, I mean, you see this in the grocery store aisles all the time. It's like, be respectful to your little brother, slap. You know? It's <laughs> like, if you're not yourself being respectful, I think also, you know, to your partner, being respectful to your kids, I think sometimes our worst comes out with our family members, and we're using tones of voice that, we're, that, are, that we wouldn't use with even that coworker who we dislike. So we need to be, it's about self, back to self-regulation, to really think about the behavior that we are exhibiting, whether it be with our kids, with the waitress who, who's you know, served us the wrong kind of sandwich. There's so many moments that we can demonstrate respect. That's just, you know, one of many strategies that I think um, really embody leadership. Okay, so back to this this stressed out mom who's driving in White Plains, New York. We've already said she shouldn't turn a blind eye to the bickering in the backseat of the car, nor should she do what she did, leave her kids by the roadside, nor should she rail at them and screech at them and in any way demean them by disrespectful language. So tell me, Jamie, what should she have done? Well, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. And we all know this intellectually, but one thing is to not act when you're in your emotional mind. You know, we need to get back to being rational and that requires a calming down of our emotions. So if we're angry, that's the time to not launch into that kind of punitive action that this mom was inspired to do. And the second thing is to remember that we are guiding our children to better behavior and that they are changeable, their works in progress. So if they're exhibiting bad behavior, what we call bad behavior, rather than labeling them as, you know, you're um, lazy, you're unkind, you're mean, you know, those words can come out of our mouths so easily. Instead, to talk about the behavior that we're observing, you know, when you say to your sister, you know, I hate you, that has a really strong impact. You and and then to follow that up with a firm conclusion, you you can't do that. It's not tolerable. So rather than going to punishment, rather than going to, you know, criticizing your awful kids, and here's what I'm gonna do, set you on the side of the road. I mean, this is an extreme case, but I think there are so many opportunities to see behavior that's unappealing, but then to see that it's our job, we're the ones accountable for for molding the behavior to be more of what we'd like to see on a daily basis, that our kids are changeable. They are changeable, and that always should give us hope. 
Right. And we're, ch- and we're changeable too. And I think that's, that's a hopeful thought to keep in mind. It is. And we learn from our mistakes. So even this mom who, you know, is really lost and I'm sure she's not feeling too good about herself right now. Instead of... And she's in the newspaper too. The, I mean, how, how horrible does it get, right? The shame. Um, but to realize that we can learn so much from even the most awful mistakes, those, you know, cringeworthy mistakes. I think that's another leadership quality that's really worth calling out is how do we respond to our kids' mistakes and how do we respond to our own mistakes? And I can remember a time that I write about in the book when I shamed my kid for leaving her violin on the bus and I was just awful. Oh, tell us that story. So she left her violin on the bus and she came home realizing that her rental violin, very nice violin, um, I can't even imagine how expensive it would have been to replace, was on the city bus. And she was saved because her friend Julian then called her and said, oh, I saw your violin and I took it home. But despite that, I launched in and, you know, just sound, my tone of voice was like, you know, the wicked witch of the West. And, you know, how could you do that? You're so forgetful. You've been forgetting your, you know, I launched, I globalized it. You've been forgetting your jackets. You've been forgetting your homework. And now this, you know, how could you do this? How could you forget your violin? This is a And what was your, what was going on with your daughter as you're, I'm in the middle of this. Her lip starts trembling. I could see a tear popping out and rolling down her cheek. Did that stop me? Ultimately, it did, but I still had to get my point across. I was I, I was in a cranky mood anyway. Patience was paper thin. And then I just stopped and I heard my voice and I saw, you know, my my daughter who's so so sweet and you know she's this is not a rebellious child she she likes to do everything right and here she is feeling horrible and so I stopped but of course you know it was too late I I had already criticized and done all those things that good leaders should not do I was bad mom with a capital B capital M (laughs) and um, you know I still I, I still vividly can recount that memory after you had the realization and you calmed down Mm -hmm. then how did you handle the situation so after we both calmed down, I actually apologized. And I think that that is something that leaders do as well, is take accountability for the piece that they contributed to in terms of a breakdown in communication, but not take responsibility for the whole thing. So that there's a subtle distinction. You don't want to apologize and take away the whole thing because she did make a mistake mm-hmm. as well. She had been forgetting. This was a, after a long string of forgetting things at school, we had been talking about this previously, and now this was kind of the climax. And so I said, you know, I apologize for, and I was specific for my tone of voice, for criticizing you, for using a word like, you know, you are forgetful. This was a situation, you were you were on the bus, and, you know, I understand what you were saying, that, that you had a lot to carry, and that you, you forgot the violin, and, you know, Yo-Yo Ma forgot his cello in the trunk of a taxi. <laughs> so we all make mistakes. Um, but that said, let's talk about how we can prevent this from happening in the future, because you have been forgetting a lot of things. So, you know, I think by remembering that we're human, and we all make mistakes, I think that was the thing I really wanted to underscore as I backpedaled from my wicked witch routine. <laughs> it's, it's really excellent what you say. I, I'm a big believer in apologizing to your children when they warrant that kind of backpedaling. And, and when you say that, you know, I made a mistake 
I apologize for my tone of voice, and I, I certainly shouldn't have brought up all that stuff in the past. And I'm sorry, because when you do that, you're absolutely modeling the kind of behavior, the, account of, the kind of accountability that you want from them. It makes perfect sense, and I know that in the moment it's not always so easy to do that, but it, it, it's certainly worthy of it. And I also wanted to pick up on something else you just said about recognizing that we're all human beings, that we all make mistakes. And that brings me to this section in your book about the different mom modes, which I thought was great because, again, I think this, it's stylistic in a way, and it's also, I think, temperamental, which is inborn. But I'd love to have you talk about the three modes, which you very nicely point out that they can be dad modes too, the achiever, the connector, and the liberator. So could you briefly describe for our listeners what the differences amongst those three modes are? So the achiever is the the mom or dad who is really setting high standards, creating stretch goals, getting a lot of satisfaction from watching the, the child strive and stretch him or herself. So the mode comes from both a skill set where you really uh, are strong and also where you find your joy and satisfaction. So can you give me an example of what an achiever mom might say in a particular situation? Yeah, so the achiever mom is the one who's saying, you know, you've been doing a great job on your recreational soccer team, but, you know, I think that uh, you're ready to move up to a competitive league. You know, let's let's stretch your skills. Mm -hmm. Let's have you achieve a higher goal. So is it usually the achiever mom who initiates the idea for the next level? Right. Mm -hmm. Really pushing the child out of their comfort zone. Okay. And then the next one is the connector mom. So the connector mom is all about nurturing and finding those intimate moments, tends to the emotional landscape uh, in the family. And so what does her mode look like in the real world? So when she's having the most satisfying, what I call best mom moments, the connector is snuggling up with the child <laughs> and having that tete-a-tete, the heart-to-heart, -heart, finding out what's going on with the child emotionally. And the liberator. So the liberator is all about giving enough room for the child to really find who they are, to bring out the uniqueness, the individuality of the child. And so this mom would tend to find a lot of satisfaction and really thrive in situations in which the child is uh, self-sufficient, is flexing their independence, uh, is really finding who they are. Now, all these sound pretty good when they're under control. And I, I also really appreciate that in the book, you talk a lot about what happens when each of these modes is kind of off kilter and to the extreme. Right. Yeah. So similar in the, and by the way, this happens in the workplace too. You, there are leadership styles. And I think we do our best when we leverage those styles to our advantage. Where, where this first of all goes wrong is when a connector looks at the achiever friend and says, oh, I need to be more like that. So we do, we, we all compare ourselves and sometimes come up short when we're running those second guessing self-judgment comparisons. So I want in this chapter for moms to have self-awareness about who they naturally are and to leverage those natural strengths. So when the modes run amok, 
uh, is usually in stressful situations. So the achiever can run amok by being too pushy and pushing the child out of where they're enjoying themselves and kind of in the flow state where they're neither bored but not overly challenged. So they're kind of creating unnecessary pressure. Mm -hmm. That's where the achiever can watch for red flags. The connector uh, might rush in to rescue and prematurely shield the child from adversity and uh, kind of be overly nurturing. Maybe that cliche of the helicopter parent, that would probably be a mom in in connector mode run amok. Mm -hmm. And then the liberator might be just stepping back too much and not recognizing some of the emotional needs of the child. Perhaps as the connector is rushing in, the liberator is not rushing in when there's truly a need. Interesting. Okay, so I'm thinking as I'm reading this, that a lot of these are part of one's inborn temperament from childhood. I'm thinking that might explain, I mean, it's just, it's kind of the way you are in the world. And I'm thinking that might explain why some parent-child relationships are much easier than others, as if you are simpatico with your child, that that your styles in a way match or complement each other. And if there might be a built-in challenge between a child and a parent of contrasting modes. What are your thoughts about that? Right. So when there are contrasting modes between the child and the parent and between two parents. Mm-hmm. So when I do workshops on how to deal with conflict in the home, a lot of the conflict comes from having a very different um, style. Yeah, I was just thinking if you had a kid who was, you know, a liberator kind of kid, and that probably will be the kind of parent he or she becomes, all kind of out there on their own, doing their own thing. They kind of see themselves as a solo act, and they're very much an initiator. They like to take risks. And the mom is one of these connectors, hold me close and let's snuggle and read a story kind of kid. I can imagine there'd be some push-pull there. Right. So good leadership is about really knowing who your followers are and adapting your behavior so that you're not treating everyone equally. So I'll tell my own story about one of my um, children. I'm total connector, off the charts connector. And I have one child who is very self-sufficient, independent, kind of, uh, I would say, more in the liberator mode. And so is my husband. We've made agreements where I've noticed that I'm interrogated to her I'm interrogating her asking her questions um, of personal nature I want to know her and and know her the minute she gets home from school (laughs) and so I could see um, and I think you know I attribute this to my um, self-awareness that I can I could pick up on the social cues and I think we need to watch our kids body language sometimes they might not be articulate about what's making them uncomfortable but I could see just in her body language she was you know tuning out she was almost cringing as I would ask these questions she just needed her space and so we made some agreements about how I we wouldn't even talk very much after she got home from school that I would be more comfortable with silence which is kind of coexisting she would do her own thing and um, I find that it's much easier to connect for example when we're in bedtime mode and this was when she started talking and she, and, I, and so I let her take the lead more often I think that what you've just pointed out Jamie is key to the leadership that parents need to have and it's really having an awareness of what the needs of the child are and it's not about our needs our need to be needed all that stuff I've 
often looked at what I think are highly functioning versus not so much <laughs> uh, functioning parents who who and and see what kind of relationships they have with their now young adult children. Who wants to hang out with mom and dad? Who does not want to hang out with mom and dad? How parents feel when the nest becomes emptier and emptier? Those are all signs and signals of relationships that may not be as healthy as they could be. And often I have to go back to mom, unfortunately, it's usually mom, and her feeling of being denied, that she wasn't getting her needs met by the child as somehow she thought it was up to the child to do that. And it's very sad because it's such a missed opportunity. Um, Parent-child relationships as children become young adults can be so fulfilling and so wonderful. But when the parent feels they've abandoned me or or they don't call enough, all that stuff, mm-hmm. it's cringe-inducing and it, it, no self-respecting young adult who wants an independent life, who deserves an independent life, would appreciate being manipulated in that way. And it comes, I think it all comes from the parent somehow thinking that it was up to the child to fulfill her needs. Right. Ugh, and that's why it just takes so much leadership agility, I think, to put our emotional needs aside when we're dealing with our child and our child who was at one time an appendage of us, you know, who really needed us for their survival. And then as they grow up and so early in, in their lives, I think that was probably the most shocking thing to me about being a parent is that so early on, they become in, you know pretty independent and have their own needs. And they're not aligned with your needs. And that's a good thing. They're supposed to be. (laughs) Right, right. We can all use a little liberator in us. So you say that your dominant mode is connector. And you say your husband is a liberator. So how do you, as as a team of leaders work out the differences within the family? Well, it started with a, a number of arguments. And uh, I think now we're a well-oiled machine. I think one of the greatest things has been to not just tolerate each other's different disciplinary style or parenting style, but to to really appreciate, to celebrate each other's different style. I think it's worked well for us because I tend to be a connector. And when that runs amok, it can turn into worry and turn into being too hands-on, kind of hovering. Whereas my husband is really steady, really calm, tends to let the kids deal with their own challenges and has confidence in them that they can work through their challenges independently. So I think together we kind of make a good pair. But I think what where we went wrong when we were first doing this parenting, you know, the first couple of years, we had to really work out things like, you know, I wanted to have our child in our room. And I think this is like, I've heard this so many times, the sleep, how we deal with getting kids to sleep. And I wanted to be, you know, in there helping the ch- helping our kids get to sleep, having them in our room with us. He wanted them to fall asleep independently. That was just one of many examples. So this sounds like it could be a battlefield if you're, you know, worried about the child's ability to soothe herself and to get herself to sleep, if you're at all anxious about every little cough and cry. And your husband's saying, let her be, she'll work it out. I I can imagine there would be tension there because from your perspective, his liberator mode was not attending to the child's needs. Right. And so where I was feeling like this was selfish and uncaring, 
he was feeling like, no, this is, this is helping them. And I think with any conflict, again, back to the big picture parenting goal. What's our big picture parenting goal? We're both wanting a night's sleep. That was actually a big picture parenting goal because if we're not getting a good night's sleep, which we weren't with our child in our room, we were going to be cranky parents. And um, so that was a, a very compelling argument that we came to see as the two of us in alignment. Uh, and then the second, uh, you know, he made a good intellectual case that the child's ability, both our children's ability to soothe themselves and get to sleep on their own was going to serve our child's needs ultimately. And so I had to put some of my emotions aside and realize that this was kind of a short-term need of mine, which was to see that the child, you know, see that the kid was breathing through the night. I mean, I was a really worried new parent, and I think a lot of new parents are. And so, you know, it was just about having that complimentary view and to kind of back off on I win, you lose. Now, this makes perfect sense to me. And now in the light of day and your children are or older, I'm sure it makes perfect sense to you. But what I, I'm trying to ascertain for our listening audience who might in, be in the middle of this right now, the intellectual rational approach, while it's true, <laughs> can be helpful when you're in a rational frame of mind. When you're in that anxious, emotional place, it's not always easy to take it in. Right. And so no one said that this was easy. And there's no cookie cutter approach to this, especially. Oh, gee, Jamie, I thought you were going to give us the answer. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I wish there were, there was an instruction manual and here's the right way, for example, to get a kid to sleep. Or the right way to stop worrying about whether she's breathing or not. Right. I think our leadership gets off track by our emotions and the job is so emotional. So how you take out the emotions? Well, you can't. There's just, you know, that's just not possible. But I think we can gain something by, that's why I think thinking about this as a leadership job, because when we're leaders, we know we have to get out of the immediate emotional heat of the situation. And there's a leadership expert named Heifetz, he's from Harvard, and he talks about getting on the balcony. And I think parents need to get on the balcony. Mm. When, they're, when you're feeling emotional, that should be a signal to us that we need to get up on the balcony and look down and see the choreography of the situation. And in getting that kind of broader perspective, that perspective from afar, sometimes we can then make better decisions, better choices, act in a way that's ultimately going to serve our desired outcomes. I I love that metaphor, get on the balcony, even if your partner needs to drag you up to the balcony. (laughs) Right. Or talk you down from the ledge (laughs) onto the balcony. Yeah. No, that's really good. Okay. So there's another part of your book that we can segue right into here. It has to do with consistency. I thought that was brilliant as you talk about the importance of consistency in parenting, not only for the two parents, but obviously for the beneficiaries of that consistency, i.e. the kids. And I want to read this quote from your book. I'm quoting you now. Child development research shows that children without consistency are anxiety-ridden, aggressive, or depressed. And when I read that, I started thinking about parents I know who clearly have their conflicts as a couple strong ones that they even exhibit in front of company. I only wonder what they do when other people aren't around. And sure enough, in thinking about the children of those marriages, they were, in fact, anxiety-ridden, aggressive, and or depressed. 
So your thoughts on the need for consistency? Um, you've already expressed them, but what, what's the bottom line here, especially for parents who may be listening here who are no longer married to their co-parent? Well, there's no cookie cutter. Here's a cookie cutter word of advice that we could all adhere to is that you never want to undermine your co-parent in front of the kid and you always want to put your kid's needs first. I mean, that's just so fundamental. And there are so many parents that violate that. They don't put the needs of the child first and they play out their conflicts, you know, their win-lose conflicts in front of the child and undermine the parenting decisions that one or another has made. That said, I will say there's a caveat to consistency, and that is that it's not human to always be aligned, to always be a united front. So I think there are respectful ways to demonstrate that two parents disagree or even argue or even get angry at each other. So that's not what we're talking about with consistency because I think that's unrealistic and you send your child out into the world and they start to see that there are actually, you know, a lot of inconsistencies that that's kind of the way human nature works and they could possibly, you know, just fall apart at the realization that, you know, they have this storybook family. So it's just, it's being authentic and, and being respectful. So inconsistency within respect, I think is fine, but consistency in terms of setting out guardrails around what decisions you're making, what expectations you've decided as a parenting team, as a leadership team, and staying true to those expectations. Yeah, I think you bring up a really excellent point that human beings don't always agree. And these two human beings that your children are growing up with, you and your partner, are going to be teaching them an awful lot of very valuable lessons if the two adults can, in fact, show the kids how conflicts are resolved. The conflicts are going to be there, but how do we talk to each other in this family? How do we show respect? How do we listen with compassion, with the intent to understand the other person's point of view? I remember a friend of mine years ago when all of our kids were little, came over to my house for a meeting that we were having about a project we were working on. And in the the, uh, time that we were together, she said, where are your kids? I said, they're here. She said, it's so quiet here. Hmm. And I, I wasn't really sure what she meant until she went on and said, and my, I had to leave. I could never have had you to my house for a meeting because there's all this screaming going on. My son and daughter are at each other all the time. And then I thought, hmm, well, I'm wondering, A, how that happened to be acceptable behavior in her family. But then I'm wondering if the kids, in fact, were mimicking the way these two parents in that family dealt with their conflicts. Mm, right. Now, my husband and I have been married for going on 35 years. And the fact that it was quiet while we were all at home that day <laughs> was, I, I took it as a, well, okay, because the home I grew up in was not quiet. But <laughs> I think I took a strategic view when we had children that respectful communication was a high priority. Right. And I think that's something important to decide on as a leadership team. Like, what are your non-negotiables? What are the things that really matter? And my husband and I have this practice of about every three months, we decide, you know, what are the things that we really want to focus on? Because if we focus on a priority, we're going to then be so hyper-conscious of it. We're going to focus on behaviors that demonstrate that value. And so 
for example, we decided our kids were squabbling a little bit too much with each other. And so we wanted to really instill respect. And we also thought, you know, they're just not doing that many chores. So the second one was responsibility. So we decided kind of as a team, okay, what are we going to make a conscious effort to really emphasize in our family? So that's where, again, I think consistency could come in, is that you set out your non-negotiables. You're not going to agree on everything, but there are some things that you're going to hold dear, and that's where your consistency is really going to shine. So how did you communicate this to the girls, that there was going to be a change in policy here? So change in policy, State of the Union, okay, you know, why should we be doing the recycling, doing things that you guys could pitch in and help? Well, we didn't do a whole guilt trip, but we talked about, you know, we've talked about the intent of all of us doing chores and pitching in. That's what makes a community, that's what makes a family work and run smoothly. So let's get out the chore charts again. You know, we're going to do a better job of following up and holding you to your commitments, but we also want you to take initiative and follow up on your commitments and it was just kind of a booster shot for all of us to just decide as a team that we're going to share responsibility for doing what was our intent all along but it's easy for those intents to kind of go by the wayside with busy schedules okay now now that's interesting i want to stop you for a minute if i might you said bring out the chore charts again so it sounds to me that there had been a previous family meeting of sorts where you might have said, okay, Daddy and I, we're going to take responsibility for the fact that we have not given you enough opportunity to contribute on different levels to the running. Nice way to put it. I like the that, smooth, Yeah, the smooth <laughs> running of the household because we're all part of this team here. And so we're going to have a, a clear expectation in this chart of what everyone's chores can be and you guys can pick and choose what you like and the expectation is that these are chores that you can commit to and that you will be held accountable for and the girls go oh okay yeah cool but something happened because now you're bringing out the chore chart again so I want to know because we all have the best intentions we all want our kids to make their beds and clean up and take responsibility for the smooth running of the house for the purpose of making them feel that they belong as, and they are part of this group, and we we need their participation. And also because it's totally unfair for any one of us adults to be burdened with all of it. it it's just not a smooth-running ship. So what I'd like to know for those of us who are listening who have been there before, what happens when you get the pushback, especially from tweens and teens? It's like, I don't have time. I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, mom. Sure, I'll get around to it. All those kinds of things that, in fact, equal noncompliance. Right. So, like anything, there are, you know, there are battles that we take on and battles that we find are not our highest priority. And so we have to select our battles. Now, if our intention is to instill responsibility, a sense of respect and responsibility in the family, which our, my husband and I decided in this case that we had um, slacked off and, and in fact we were doing it all and resenting it and also neglecting an opportunity to inspire res- shared responsibility. So that then became our intention. Well, like any intention, whether it be a New Year's resolution to exercise more, to eat healthy, we lose focus. And so that's just a given. We're all going to do that. 
But what we need to do is strengthen our intention, be vivid in the setting of our goal. What does it look like to inspire responsibility? In our case, it looks like putting together chore charts and holding the kids to their chores. Okay, once that intention is crafted, then you can more easily notice when your actions are out of alignment with that intention. Ah, so if it's Anna's responsibility to set the table, for example. That's what her responsibility is. How did I know that? (laughs) If it's her responsibility to do that, and she doesn't do that, and there she is on the couch with her... Facebook. Her Facebook, and she's really, really busy, and you know that if you interrupt her right now, she's not going to be really happy with you, and you're hungry, so you just... Take out the silverware and you start setting the table. Right. And at that moment, you go, wait a minute. <laughs> this, is not, this is not helping. Right. We're being unaccountable when we do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, a, I'm big on accountability. Accountability comes from the root to count on. So can we count on ourselves and our kids to do what we say we're going to do? And I talk about that all the time with, with my work clients and with my kids. It's like, can I count on you to do what you say you're going to do? And so that requires shared responsibility. Sometimes it does require reminders. Hey, you know, it's time to set the table and resisting the temptation to do it because it's easier than provoking a battle. Mm-hmm. So if that's truly your intention, it's not going to be the easy path. It's, it's possibly the path of most resistance to hold firm to your intention to get the kids to do the chores. And what if she continues to shine you on? Um, yeah, yeah, Ma, I will. I will. I told you I would. Mom. <laughs> Well, there, then there are two choices. You either do it yourself or you either get, you know, get angry, you get frustrated, you nag 10 times. Or I think that if ahead of time you set out an intention and you have a commitment, then it's about calmly reminding your child, I'm just going to ask you right now, not later, not in two minutes, to set the table. That's the commitment we made. Is it not the commitment we made? Is there something that I need to know that you're doing now that's more important than honoring your commitment? And, you know, I I try to just, and maybe I, you know, have a situation that's different from some children who can have a more recalcitrant, rebellious style. But I I think that that's kind of a a cop-out is to say, well, you know, I just have a kid who's really rebellious, who's really apathetic, Mm -hmm. who's really contrary, oppositional, because I think you you then drop down into an unaccountable, vicious cycle, which is an excuse. How about, what's the role of consequences? Say that again? Well, I'm talking about discipline and consequences. If if the kid says, I don't feel like doing it. Yeah, I know I agreed to, but you know, I I just, this is more, I, mom, I'm, I'm talking to my friend. This is really important. She's in trouble. I need to talk to her now. I know they're very creative about right, very, very <laughs> manipulative, very creative. Yeah, and I, I think we've all heard about logical consequences, and I think those need to be decided ahead of time. Mm-hmm. If there's a problem with, you know, needing to nag a child to do something as simple as set the table, then you decide ahead of time. Okay, if I'm asking you twice, three times, I don't want to set up. Um, this cycle of nagging. So what we're going to do, and you do this not in the heat of the moment, what we're going to do is, you know, I'm going to set a consequence. Let's decide what that, especially the 14 year old, let's decide jointly on what that consequence is going to be. Maybe you lose your computer. Maybe you lose your Facebook, um, something that matters to Mm -hmm. the child because you've decided this is your desired outcome. This is your goal to not hold firm on that is to convey a message 
that this goal is in fact not important. Um, it's not part of the value system of the family. And you're setting up uh, what I talk about in chapter four, a, a culture of entitlement. Yes, this is good, which takes us back to where we started in this conversation about your daughter wanting to join the club so she could go swimming in that culture of entitlement. And this is great because as we're wrapping up here, I want to touch on the chapter that you talked about family culture. As you say in the book, the families like companies have their own culture, and that's so true. You have dinner with another family, go camping with another family, and you get it right away. And I thought you told a great story about your childhood friend, Mariana, and how you felt the contrast in her family's culture when you were visiting at her house compared to your own family. And I wish you'd share a little bit of that story, if you would. Uh, is that the story of Marina? Oh, sorry, Marina. Yes. Marina. Yeah. So my childhood friend, Marina, who had a very loud, rambunctious family, and they were always fighting, and the father was always singing Italian at the top of his lungs. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, I can just remember I, he was constantly nursing a huge pot of spaghetti sauce. <laughs> it just, you know, that was a, a fixture in my mind was, you know, Johnny over this big pot of spaghetti sauce and not even seeming to notice that the kids are practically killing them. In my mind, you know, we have this very sweet, conflict-free quiet family and you know they were they were actually like biting each other's heads and physically you know really um hurting each other and it it just always struck me as amazing how how different our families were and I didn't have the language then to see that this was an example of two very different cultures and in the book you you actually mentioned that I guess you're still friends Mm -hmm. she was surprised to hear that there was a part of you that envied the chaos in her family. Right. You know, I, she always wanted to come sleep over at our house because it was quiet and she didn't have her two brothers to fight with. And I just thought her, her family was so colorful and so interesting. I mean, the fights were fascinating to me. How they could, even how they stood up to their parents and disrespected them. They would say unbelievable things I would never dream of saying, but I was such an obedient child and I just marveled at that ability to be so... Um, have such moxie. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. Okay, so this thing about culture, it's changeable, isn't it? Well, I think it's changeable, and it's something that we as parents have to be strategic about creating. It can happen just naturally, but I think when we're when we're exhibiting really strong leadership, we're figuring out what kind of culture we want. And, you know, culture both in the workplace and at home, is about how we celebrate, how we deal with conflict, how we spend our time, what we talk about at the family table. And all of this doesn't happen automatically. And I think in the most healthy cultures, whether it be you know, Southwest Airlines or you know, the Joneses down the street, they've made a conscious effort to instill a certain value system that is demonstrated through daily life. So interesting to me about this idea of a family culture and what you bring into a marriage that is legacy and what you consciously choose to do as new parents. I know that there's not a lot of education that goes with (laughs) pre-parenting. 
<laughs> I'm wondering if you believe that leaders are born or made. Made, unequivocally. I think that if we think leadership is some inborn trait, then there's no chance for us to continually evolve and grow and hone our leadership skills. I truly believe that anyone can be a leader. And in fact, parents are exhibiting acts of leadership every day and learning from their mistakes and, you know, being purposeful about our actions. So I absolutely believe that leadership is uh, something that we grow into. That's good news. <laughs> it is good news. Yes, very yeah. hopeful. Before we wrap up here, Jamie, I'd, I'd love for you to just tell us about where we can find out more about your book. And for all of us, Jamie Wolf's book is Mom in Chief, How Wisdom from the Workplace Can Save Your Family from Chaos. I know that you do leadership trainings and parent education. So can you tell us where people might find out more information about your work? Sure. So the book is, of course, available everywhere, Amazon and uh, independent bookstores. If you don't find it in a bookstore, please order it and support your independent bookstores. A little plug for independent bookstores. Yay. And <laughs> in terms of web presence, um, www.mominchief.com, no hyphens. And that's where you can contact me, sign up for my free newsletter, and read my blog. And I have features that run regularly on workingmother.com. Great. And at your website, we'll find out about trainings? Right. So the website, um, you can link to theparentleader.com, which is my website that describes in length the talks that I give, the, work so the workshops that I give. So the parent leader is the uh, information about workshops and talks, and the mom and chief website also can give you that information um, in an abbreviated form. Great, and I'll have those links up on my website too. Thanks. <laughs> well, great. Thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate Thank your you, time. Annie. This was fun, and good luck with your work. Thank you, and good luck with your work. I think we are definitely on the same page. Absolutely. Here's to more mindful parenting. Exactly, yes. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest, Joan Ryan, will discuss her new book, The Water Giver, the story of a mother, a son, and their second chance. Till then, happy parenting! <laughs>